0: Thank you very much, John, and I going to thank you and your colleagues for arranging this. And hopefully, what I plan to do is give you my slant and my opinions and how the strike came about, some of the things that happened, and maybe in the question and answer, it's up to others to make up their views as to what I say is correct or what others say. But can I say that? If I start away by trying to explain the events (coughs) leading up to the strike, because personally I think there's now myths about the strike, about somebody snapped their fingers and the miners walked out. That was not the case, certainly not in Scotland, where I'll concentrate because of my knowledge there. You've got to think of the scenario, what had happened over the number of years before the strikes in Scotland where a lot of the smaller community pit village pits had shut because of their size and the concentration of the miners had moved to larger collieries, Men had to travel sometimes 30, 40 miles to get to their work, whereas in the past they'd local community-based pits. And when that happened, and then they started out with the pit closures, people realised very soon we might have nothing left Despite the fact the community pits had went in a certain way, the community still worked in the mining industry as such. If I can speak about some of the tactics it used, and as I say, I'm trying to create the scenario of how the miners, the Scottish miners, thought at that time. Because the tactics used by the National Coal Board, it was a nationalised industry and was state-owned. And therefore, unfortunately, in my view, because of the way the system was, a government opposed to things like the mining industry could use that to do what they've done and decimate our industry. Because some of the stories, my own particular colliery I worked in since 1967 when I served my time as an electrician, was Cardown Colliery. And what happened in Cardown before it closed? was two years before the closure, we produced coking coal, high-grade coking coal that was sent to Ravenscraig for the steelworks. They took away our market. Not British Steel Corporation. The National Coal Board stopped selling our coal to Ravenscraig. And that immediately cost us £3 million a year in income because of the differential in price between coking coal and steam coal. That is a tactic that was used. Another tactic was that the coal board would bring in new equipment, leave it in a pit head in a colliery and say, oh, look, the costings of that colliery are horrendous because look at your costs and your capital and all the rest of it. And much of that equipment was never meant to go underground and was never going to again it was playing with economics and accountancy to show how pits could be thing, changed and the other thing that happened since we get the new area director albert wheeler who eventually went on to become deputy chairman of the coal board the only good thing from my point of view his ambitions were to be the chairman they never reached that position was that the management was all changed in scotland long term managers who worked with the union liked, fought for their pits, I'll give you the example of Cardown again because I know it. When, the, when Cardown was announced for closure in May 1983, we were the first pit in Britain to go through what was called the new colliery review procedure and this was heralded as his next great thing. Because instead of uh, the coal board deciding, they said they were going to appoint an independent chairman, which in our case was a QC, who listened to the evidence produced by the unions, and those opposed to closure, and made a recommendation. And in our case, the recommendation is that Cardown could stay open. But then we discovered that it was only a recommendation. The final say still lay with the National Coal Board. So it was a farce. The prompted this has been a great thing, and it will stop the issue of pit closures. You'll get a fair chance to put your case, but indeed it didn't, because it wasn't only that that happened in other instances, where the independent chair suggested that there was a life for a colliery, and the co board would not accept the findings. So it was a paper exercise. But going back to the management changes, let me say this, that the manager of our colliery, because one of the arguments used by Wheeler and his cohorts was that because we were a very, very gassy pit, probably the gassiest pit in Britain, there was an explosion in the 1980s, and, and we had to be very careful. He argued that if we produced more coal and became economic, then the amount of gas we'd produced, the pit wouldn't work. It was absolute nonsense everybody knew that people more qualified me ventilation engineers etc and our manager knew that and our manager behind the scenes was working with the unions to put forward arguments to counter that and that was discovered because he was stuck in it if you like by some of his colleagues who were promised a job and that manager who had 40 years experience in the coal board was sent for to the area headquarters in Scotland, Green Park, and told that if he didn't sign in the dotted line except his golden handshake, he was getting put in the words he's told us in front of others, put in a ducat, which in Scotland is a ducat, and left there to retire in 65. Now that was the way the coal board were willing to treat senior management, collier managers, So you can imagine how the men were getting treated. And the idea of changing the whole management was to bring in hardliners, not technically gifted mining engineers, but people who were hard-nosed enough and were going to take a hard line with the men in the pit and follow the proposed closure programme. In Scotland at that time, and this is where you know, some people think, as I say, somebody snapped their finger and everybody walked out, In Scotland, leading up to the strike, we had already had six colliery closures since 1980. If you remember when the original, well, you maybe don't, but there was a hit list of pit closures that was pronounced in 1981, and it was a walkout throughout collieries in the United Kingdom. And that hit list was withdrawn, basically because... The Ridley plan wasn't in fruition yet, they didn't build up the It stocks enough and they weren't ready to take on the miners in their dispute. And that was withdrawn. And ironically, then it started step by step. And as I say, in our part of the country, we already had six pit closures. So the miners in Scotland knew what was coming. We'd witnessed it, we'd seen it, we'd lived it. We'd already lost six collieries. And we knew what was coming down the line for more. And some of the the collieries that closed in Scotland were not on the original hit list that was produced in 1981. So there was no doubt, no dubiety on behalf of the miners in Scotland that we were facing the decimation of our industry, our jobs and our communities. Nobody had to persuade us that, that something had to be done. And we can talk a long, long time about the rights and wrongs. And I, I accept other people have got a point of view. But I hate to hear the words that some people use about lions being led by donkeys. That wasn't the case. It was the miners themselves that went out and strike. It became maybe political because I think in the media... Saying Scargill against Thatcher, and that's the way it became. But that was not why the Scottish miners went and strike. Scottish miners went and strike because we knew what was coming, we'd seen it with the six collieries that had already closed. And also, there was a plan that was produced, I think it was about a year and a half before that, where they talked about the National Coal Board plans were to get rid of the periphery areas. What a terrible word. You know, when you're talking about mining communities and jobs and all the rest of your periphery. So those periphery areas had to go, and there was going to be a concentration of what they called the central coal field. And I'm sure my colleagues know about this as well. Where your bulkier coal production would be in Yorkshire, Nottinghamshire, the Midlands, South Wales, Scotland, North East, North West, Kent. They'd all to go. They were peripheral. And as I say, what a terrible word to use for that. The, the, as i say this the tactics in scotland became when we went into the strike one of the things we realized very very quickly is because of the coal stocks and power stations there was one goal that we could have had that might have affected the strike and we entered into discussions with the rail unions and istc at that time the steel union because Ravenscraig was the big steelworks in Scotland and became a big, big issue for many years after that until it closed eventually. But we realised in order to try and hit something, we had to try and get an agreement to curtail the production at Ravenscraig. And we thought we had that because of the deal we'd done between the three unions that there would be 18,000 tonne of coal a week allowed into Ravenscraig, in order that it maintained production at a certain level so not to endanger the furnaces and all the rest of it, not to do any infrastructure damage. But unfortunately that never worked and we're now seeing 30 years later when the cabinet minutes come out, the hand of government on this at all times, because it now shows that Haslam, who was the British Steel chairman at the time, had meetings with the chief constables in Scotland with the government, shown about the illegality of having lorry convoys running through the motorways and streets of Scotland came into being because of the effect that was going to have and because the government at the time did not want to allow Ravenscraig to be affected that way. And that's how in May, early on in the strike, before Orgreave happened and all the rest of it, there was horses used at Hunterston where the coal was landed, imported coal and iron ore came in and got lorried over. There was mass arrests at Hunterston and Ravenscraig during the strike before other places because that was in May. Personally, I was arrested myself at Ravenscraig and I was actually along with another colleague in charge of the picket line that day and what had happened was, not miners but ultra-left political people, to be quite honest, had thrown bottles at the lorries as they tried to get in, and I was out saying, look, stop that, you're going to hurt the people, the men that's trying to, you know, picket and all the rest of it, and the next thing, I landed in a police van, and I was fortunate enough, as I was getting taken away, I was slimmer at that time, and I slipped out my jacket and ran away, <laughs> But to my shame it's actually filmed in television and it plays in the mining museum. I could run in those days I can assure you, but but to my shame I fell over a hedge eighteen inches high and tripped and I got recaptured again. <laughs> but but the interesting thing was that because how they worked it, when the snatch squads arrested the pickets there was about 10 police vans and they filled them up and you were taken away to Mother Roller Hamilton police station and you were left there and what? because I'd had my brief escape and I got put back I had to sit for 45 minutes in the back of a police van with a policeman because to the next convoy came in if you like more arrests came and it was very interesting I mean the guy was a bit younger than me, but we chatted away for that time. And he's saying, "You know, we don't like to do this. We don't really want to do it." So I says, "Well, open the door and let me out." But <laughs> he backed down at that. But anyway, when it came to my court case, and this is an interesting thing, that uh, I was selected in Scotland to be a test case for legal aid, not because of my union position. It was just coincidental. And I had to appear in front of this sheriff in his chambers along with my solicitor. And he put the case forward. I was married, two children at the time, about legal aid. And eventually the sheriff, after a lot of, accepted it. And when our solicitor said, Well, I'm assuming if this is a test case, everybody will get treated the same. And the sheriff says, No, it will be every individual case. So it wasn't a test case. And lo and behold, when I appeared in court with breach of the peace, I pled not guilty. And it was the same sheriff. And what happened was the policeman had sat in the van with for three quarters of an hour because I'd got to know him pretty well in that time. He was first in the dock and there was a drawing of where the, the picket line was and he could point out roughly where I was, so that was fair enough. But then this other guy appeared that certainly, um, it's, you know, I couldn't say for sure, but I was pretty sure he'd never been near me because he was about six feet six. And he had me about 200 yards over the other way. So the judge looked at me after all this went on and said, are you saying the policemen are lying? And I said, if I say yes here, I'm going to get found guilty. I just did this feeling. A switch went in my head. And I said, no, I'm just telling you my side of the story. And three times he asked me that. And he nearly broke his gavel, hitting the thing, saying, right, not guilty because I lack a police cooperation. And that is the type of things that went on. The fines that miners were getting in Scotland, I don't know about elsewhere in the country, if if a person was arrested at that time for breach of the peace in a town centre on a Friday night, it was a £25 fine. What the miners were getting was £250 fines and banned from going on the the picket lines. So if people can convince me that the judiciary and the police weren't involved in this, then I must say I would take some convincing. But... That collusion is why the National Union just now, and people say it's 30 years later, are so interested in trying to find out and we've actually got people going through the minutes looking at it to try and cross-check what was said in hands up in other ways. Because it is our opinion, and only our opinion at this stage, that the country was misled from the dispatch box by the Prime Minister of the time about the truth about the number of pit closures, about the truth about the police of the strike and about other things. And I pose this question to people because it's very important, I think. When things like Orgreave happened, when 95 minors were arrested and charged with mobbing and rioting, and then every one of them charges were dropped, there was £450,000 paid out in compensation to these guys. Not one policeman was chastised or charged as far as we know it and the QC that led our cases at that time has always posed this question same police force, South Yorkshire if they had not got away with what happened to the miners in Orgreaves would they have tried to do what it turns out they've done at Hillsborough now a few years later and that's a question for other people to answer but it is worth thinking about because of what was happening at the time the lack of control What they were getting away with led to other things that were far more serious, I must say, than what happened at Orgreaves to us, but it is worth posing that question. In Scotland at the time also, we had 1,441 people arrested during the minor strike, believe it or not. There was 207 men sacked, and this varied between areas. I was talking to my comrade Terry from South Wales. Depending on what area director you had, there was either a hard line taken or a softer line, and I'm quite sure he might touch on that. But if, basically in Scotland, because we'd won Colliery where, for the beginning, there was a number amendment back to work in Bilson Glen Colliery, if you were arrested in the Bilson Glen Colliery picket line and you were a National Coal Board employee, you were sacked. There were a few escaped the net, but that was the basic. If you were arrested in that particular picket line, you were sacked. You could be arrested at another colliery's picket line, not get sacked, but in that particular one you were pinpointed and you were sacked. And the thing is, many of these men never get their jobs back. So albeit 30 years ago, their whole life changed, and it's changed to this day because of what happened. I'm getting the, it's not the red card, it's a white card to join, but can I just say this in finishing? because it, I mean we could all talk a long time about this and hopefully the question and answer session will bring out some points but let me finish on this about legacy because I think I was asked to touch slightly on legacy the legacy we see of what happened then because I still believe that we were right to do what we've done and I know people say Oh, it wasn't the right time. Well, there's never a good time. The miners never had a general strike back to the 1920s with disputes and all the rest of it about wages. But we were fighting for our very existence at that time. That is the difference between 72 and 74 strikes that the miners get involved in. And the legacy we have in this country now, because I've actually became a bit of an anorak. No, I'm into IT, but somebody showed me how to download an app, and it's the National Grid app, that tells you any time during the day how much electricity is produced from each source. And if you look at that app consistently, 30, the high 30s to over 40% electricity in this country is still produced from coal fired. Now if you talk to the public, I bet they don't believe that, but it's there in black and white to see. And that is to me as a legacy that under this country we have millions of tons of known coal reserves. We could have thousands of people employed, young people as well, because I served my apprenticeship in the coal board, one of the best apprentices out. And many apprentices at the coal board that served their time with the coal board didn't stay with the coal board, they moved on to other industries. It was a conduit for training the National Coal Board for their other industries as well. If you look at North Sea, Most of the electricians in the North Sea from Britain have been coal board trained because of the specialised gassy atmosphere we had to work in. They had the qualifications and didn't need retrained for North Sea work. All that we have lost and we now have a country importing 60% of the coal we require in this country. Now whether you're against coal or not, whether you think it's a dirty fuel, despite the fact we've got carbon capture and clean coal that could be used, that is the fact of life at present. And for the last 30 years, as the demise of our industry went, what has that effect is that had on the balance of payments of this country? What effect has it had on the, the young people and the job prospects and the fact that we have a natural resource that could be exploited by this country? Because they're quite keen to look at fracking, they're quite keen to subsidise nuclear, but we have coal under our shores that have never been properly... <coughs> helped and subsidised if necessary in the lean time to get us through that. So thank you very much for that John and hopefully we'll get some questions.